welcome to the Found Cause, where we found our cause and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael Man behind the machine, and in my virtual front is first. Theodore, under the PC, the person of Christ. And to his left is. Sebastian, the bookkeeper. We have some serious delay on this online episode. We're trying another online episode, you know, some random circumstances. We love to gather in person when we can, but uh, there might be some delays, so please apologize for any delays between us. Apparently, our internets are uh, trying to confide us. In any case, Today's episode is on an interesting topic, I thought, and that is Christian pacifism. You may have heard the term before. Maybe you think it has something to do with the Pacific Ocean. Um, it does not. We're going to talk all about Christian pacifism and a refutation of it. Um, there are there are plenty of histories and groups that have Christian pacifism in there, Jehovah's Witnesses being one of them that I think of, um, Seventh-day Adventists as well. But we want to talk more exclusively on the, the actual theology behind it and then some refutations sticking straight to Scripture. We don't want to stray any farther than we need to from Scripture to talk about this topic because it's very personal for many people who have been through war or have seen people die or lives credos of, of nonviolence. And so we want to refute um, those uh, frankly wicked ideas without being flippant about them and saying they're wicked because, you know, I'm a gun-toting, loving American. Yes. Fun fact, um, I just watched with my fiance and her parents yesterday, Hacksaw Ridge. Right. And that's about um, the soldier who is a conscientious objector who saved like 75 people without even picking up a gun. I, well, without shooting a gun. Right. And and so the, that guy was a Seventh-day Adventist, right? Right. And so I disagree with the philosophy. And I remember watching Hacksaw Ridge and he, he won't even, uh, the soldier will not. So again, the pretense, and here's some background with the story. Uh, the background to Christian pacifism is that there have been many pacifist philosophies in the past. Pacifist just being a Latin root for uh, peace peacemakers, people who um, will not fight. Specifically, pacifism means they will not fight back, not in wars and certainly not in personal conduct. So they are into taking beatings without defending yourself, not defending your families, not defending the country, and, and generally nonviolence. Gandhi was committed to nonviolence, and he's certainly not a Christian. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists are committed to, to non-war. Same with the Jehovah's Witnesses. And then um, there are other Christian groups that come and go that believe in Christian pacifism. Some of them cults and non-Christians. Some of them uh, just confused Christians. I, I think most famously of uh, people who would adhere to some form of Christian pacifism, uh, John Piper, uh, beloved pastor, reformed, we agree with him on a lot of things. Um, so this is this is saying there are legitimate Christians who hold a Christian pacifism that I disagree with strongly. He made the famous quote that if a gunman came into his house and was threatening to rape the family of his, that he would not shoot that gunman because he and his family were prepared to face Jesus, but that gunman is not. I believe that is wrong. That's being worse than an unbeliever and not taking care of your family and you are equipped and, and allowed to defend yourself within the word and law of God. So it's righteous to defend your family. It's righteous to defend yourself. All that being said, let's talk about the specifics of it, because I would say one of the mistakes people make in this topic is making hard and fast rules where God does not make hard and fast rules. So first comes first. Sebastian, Theodore, what are some verses that Christian pacifists go to? In fact, let me go to you first, Theodore. What is like the lovey-dovey Christian passage that most Christian pacifists would point to? And we should all agree with the passage because it's straight out of the word of God. Yeah, should I start out uh, like uh, verses 38 to 48? Can I do that much? Yeah. Okay, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. <clears throat> you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not risk an evil person. Do not resist <laughs> an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn wants to sue you and take your shirt let him have your coat also whoever forces you to go one mile go with him too give to him who asks and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? 
If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Indeed. And then uh, coupling on, same Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave. Sebastian, you have a quote from the Beatitudes? I do. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted you, the prophets who were before you. So I'm sure our readers can, our readers, our listeners can, can understand the general principle here. And that is that if you are to obey Jesus and his teachings here in particular from the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot resist the evildoer. Just as Jesus says right there, do not resist um, the evildoer, if he sues you, let him have your coat as well. I think Dieter was breaking up a bit there, but famous line about someone slaps you on the, the right cheek, turn the other to him as well. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses and other pastors will take those lines and say that they are entirely a rule set. And so if someone comes and physically, assa- physically assaults you, you cannot um, do anything to defend yourself, but run away, they say, although if they were taking Jesus's words verbatim, they would turn the other cheek. They would allow, they would like, not, they would enable their attacker to do more to them. And then equally, if somebody came and stole your coat or they sued you for your coat, um, that you would let them have um, more as well. And so if you are to take these things seriously, these commands of Jesus, so the Christian pacifist says you need to um, be a peacemaker, like said in the Beatitudes, be humble and merciful. And this means not defending yourself, rolling over and, and taking beatings, which I will say right now, we're going to give our, our refutations of pacifism, but know that we don't reject these statements by Jesus. We do wholeheartedly accept that there are times to take a beating and not defend yourself. And there are times to be a peacemaker. And there are times to, for peace and for war, as Ecclesiastes says, there's time for peace and time for war, meaning there are times for peace. So we're going to give a lot of refutations of Christian pacifism, but know that that doesn't mean that we are for rejecting these, these truths from Jesus. Just know that they aren't hard and fast rules that you always apply. And we'll see from the very same word of God and from Jesus himself that he also was not taking it to be a hard and fast rule for every situation. He was just saying that there are these times um, when you do that and you do not resist the evildoer. Any other Christian pacifist quotes that you guys have? I would say there's one key one. Maybe I'll bring this one up. There's one key one that people, I think, often misquote. I really despise it when they misquote it. It comes from Matthew, um, which is near and dear to my heart because I memorized it during COVID. You probably heard that before. But there's a portion when Jesus is arrested in Matthew 26, um, where they come up to arrest him. And then in this this gospel of Matthew, uh, it doesn't say who, but in one of the gospels in John, it says Peter. So Peter steps forward and he defends Jesus, and he cuts the ear off of one of the high priest servants who was there arresting Jesus. So here's the the text from Matthew 26. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus's companions, this is Peter, reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple's courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. So the key text here, and you'll hear it quoted by non-Christians and Christians alike, Ye who die by this or live by the sword, die by the sword, or in this particular translation, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. In any case, you've probably heard it many times before, live by the sword, die by the sword. Meaning, the methods, and some people like take it as a proverb, which I don't really think it should be taken as a proverb either, but if you live by a particular method, i.e. by the sword, you will die by that particular method, by the sword. So if you like are a lawyer who sues people until they're totally destitute, that one day, you know, you'll 
get your karma comeuppance and and you'll get sued to the ground too um, i don't think that's what it's saying i don't think it should be taken out of context as a proverb nor do i think it should be used like the pacifist would use it the pacifist says that anyone who draws the sword anyone who picks up the sword and the sword analogy to guns today i mean you can pick up swords too today but guns would be the immediate analogy to the modern day and those who live by guns will die by guns those who wield a gun will die by guns um, any immediate approaches from you men so now we've got three key christian pacifist texts we've got the love your neighbors and take beatings uh, and don't resist the evildoer we've got the blessed be the peacemakers so they'll be called sons of god and now we have this live by the sword die by the sword quote what are your gentlemen's takes on this that in many times god does call us to be martyrs to lay down and actually be vulnerable in several situations like uh, the apostles for example peter and not peter paul was all beaten almost to death in a town in anatolia i forget exactly the name now it's in an axe it's an axe mm -hmm. and the next day he shows up and he's like oh i thought we killed you why are you back here but he pretty much didn't defend himself at that point so to an extent yes god sometimes calls us to expose ourselves and risk our lives but does that mean that is the case 100 percent of the time we will see but that is my immediate reaction from these from what we've read okay Theodore, any thoughts? Uh, not right now. Sorry. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, and I'll just start the refutation then. So you've heard the, the Christian pacifist background, and then I'll say, like with a lot of teachings, both sides, and Christian pacifists are no exception, can take these texts and then start running with them and building a whole slew of philosophies that are just entirely unbiblical and untrue. They'll build philosophies about God, um, like categorically not being pro-violence, and therefore he would never force anybody to do anything, and i.e. violence is like the ultimate form of evil because you're forcing somebody to do something, and that same same thing goes for like murder and all that stuff that that is the the ultimate form of of evil and it's all tied in with free will and if you notice seven day adventists and jehovah's witnesses and a lot of these cults are also very very pro free will and so they tie it into the whole non-violence thing that you should have the free will to do what you want and that's like god's ultimate is free will and therefore violence is the ultimate form of non-free will you hear it even in political thoughts these days libertarians um, which i respect usually libertarian thought i consider myself a libertarian but libertarians have a principle of non-violence is what they call it and it's the exact same principle that you can't force anybody to do anything that's the ultimate evil um, they don't evoke god because libertarians are godless but uh they are nonetheless keeping the christian pacifist line of that, that violence is really the only thing that god abhors but sebastian i know you have some counter scripture that god does not hold to a non-violent uh philosophy yes i will start first with ecclesiastes chapter three you even alluded to it there is a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace, meaning that God allows for what you just read to occur, mm -hmm. meaning it is not against his will for there to be war. Now, the question is, is war evil or is it good? So to answer that, I, I mean, I will start with the feisty one first. Exodus 15, the Lord is a man of war. Hmm. I mean, that would think that might point us in the direction of if if war is evil or not. Mm -hmm. In the same chapter in Exodus, uh, Moses in his chant, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that moved uh, Paul, Matthew, and John to write their epistles, mind you, so same spirit, talks about how Pharaoh was destroyed how the anger of God was poured out on the Egyptian army and Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, that's very violent to be drowned, to have all the horses and the people drown, get massacred, violent. Same with the Canaanites. We could even go on, on the Canaanites in that sense. And one of the Psalms that is often quoted by Jesus in the New Testament and by other uh, apostles, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Sion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. And then it talks about being a priest of Melchizedek, but then after it says, The Lord is at your, your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead, and crush the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Again, not a very meek, squishy Jesus in how it's often portrayed in American in the American church. Right, and sometimes the worldwide church. And, you know, we don't want to say that Jesus, again, Jesus was meek as far as he, he gave himself over to death. He did not resist his, his own death. So he was meek, and he says as much that he's gentle and lowly. And all of that, and he does have to, and the Beatitudes of the meek shall inherit the earth. But don't confuse meekness for weakness, which I think in English and in culture these days, they're synonymous, that meekness is weakness. And probably even in the Roman day, they were considered generally saying that meekness is weakness, but uh, they really aren't. Meekness is not taking um, what you're owed. Weakness is not being able to take what you're owed. So that's that's the difference there. Jesus is entirely able to take what he wants, and sometimes he does, and he promises that he will in the end of things, and he did in the Old Testament. It was just a unique time where he decided to not take what he was owed and instead give. So that is the story of Jesus and why he was meek, not weak. And what you'll see there, I think we've pretty thoroughly shown that God's character is not against war. God's character is not against violence. So those who come to you or Christian pacifists that are listening and say that God abhors violence, they are categorically wrong. They have to be careful on what they mean. They need to be more specific when they say God abhors violence. Because we would say he doesn't abhor violence as long as it's holy and good and righteous violence, as long as it has the proper uh, motivations behind it. But, uh, and, and let me defend those same passages, and maybe, Sebastian, you can uh, uh, defend yourself. That was the God of the Old Testament, and it was God. You know, it, the Bible also says vengeance is the Lord's, i.e. not mankind's. So who are we to do violence? Maybe violence is strictly a, a God-given thing, um, and God from the Old Testament even. Now that we're in a new paradigm of the new church, that we should be able to uh, only love our neighbors, as Jesus said, and that Jesus changed the law and made it uh, a lovey-dovey law instead of a, a harsh old law of the Old Testament God. Do you have any New Testament quotes that would show Jesus being equal to the God of the Old Testament as far as calling for harsh war, violence, anything? Uh, yes, and th there's one that comes to mind first. I do want to say that, for example, making a whip, turning tables is not exactly being a pushover mm -hmm. and kicking people out. So I understand it's not the same as war, but at the same time, he's not just rolling over and letting the Pharisees do whatever they want. Right. At the same time, he calls them a brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs. And the same Jesus also is more than happy to sit down next to an ex-prostitute and show her that he is the fountain of life. So there's both. This is the same guy who rained down fire from Yahweh in heaven. Yahweh rained fire from Yahweh in heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. So the same guy who says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It's the same guy who rained fire in the Old Testament. Now in Revelation, right now we live in, in an age of mercy from God. That's a topic for another day. There's going to be a time in which mercy is going to be brought to a halt and the day of the Lord, the day of judgment is going to come. On that day, in Revelation 19, the, the heavens will open and a white horse with a rider called Faithful and True is going to descend. He who judges in righteousness and makes war. This is what it is. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is same Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows by himself. He is clothed in a robe, robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God, a.k.a. Jesus. Right. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword in which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And again, as he descends, he's going to exterminate the armies of the Antichrist and throw the man and the false prophets into the lake of fire. So, not exactly a pacifist. 
Right. So, okay. So we're refuting the fact that God categorically abhors violence. He doesn't. He uses it for proper and holy means. And then equally, it's not just the God of the Old Testament or an old paradigm of God or however you want to justify it being a new paradigm here now that Christ is here. Christ himself equally makes war in very same language that it was used in the Old Testament. He makes war. He throws his enemies down. They're crushed beneath his feet. Uh, the prophecies about the Messiah is that he'll make his enemies his footstool. And so he is in this this new age of the Messiah, here in the Christian age, we are still under a God who righteously uses violence and will on the Day of Judgment. So both of those categories of objection against um, Christian war are gone, because we're losing theater, poor internet. Um, but the, the category of Christian violence that they might say is still evil is mankind doing violence, because... While God might be justified in doing war, is man justified in doing war? And they would point, let me go back to Matthew 26 and say, Jesus says to Peter, put your sword back in its place. Guns, fists, whatever you want to violence. You know, the sword is a stand-in for any kind of weapon. Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. So there it is, plain, plain English, plain Greek, whatever you read it in, uh, that, that you cannot draw weapons to fight. Hold your horses, everybody. How did Peter get a sword? Did someone tell him to get that sword? You'll notice, evident observant, <laughs> Sebastian, that Jesus isn't suddenly like, where did you get that sword? There should be, you know, do you have a license for that sword? Do you have a license for that sword? No. Um, and Jesus clearly knew, uh, not only does he know everything, but I also don't think it was a hidden sword. I think that Jesus knew that Peter had this sword. Um, and if you go back um, in a different gospel, in Luke 22, you will hear Jesus say this, and we get a clue as to why Peter might have been carrying the sword and why Jesus would have been saying nothing. Because here is Luke 22. Then Jesus asked them, the apostles, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered among the transgressors, and I will tell you that it must be fulfilled. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciple said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. This here is Jesus. He had previously told the apostles, and now I don't get it twisted. I do believe this is a specific command to the apostles. I don't think it's some weird command to all of us that everybody has to be equipped with the sword today. It's, it's not a hard and fast rule, so I don't think that I'm being hard and fast. But what it does show you is that when previously Jesus had said to his apostles another particular command to the apostles, go out two by two, don't bring any extra things, go out and, um, and proselytize in the nation of Israel. He's now saying, you know, the end is coming near. People are going to come after you, right? Uh, Jesus is going to be numbered with the transgressors and that the people will be attacking you. Therefore, take the extra stuff, take the extra revisions, be wise and carry a sword because you'll need to presumably defend yourself with the sword. And the apostles reply, look, we have two swords. And he says, good, <laughs> like that's enough. You don't, you don't need to have like an arsenal, but that's but two swords, great. So these presumably are the swords because swords aren't cheap. They're kind of hard to come by. There was sword control, just like there's calls for gun control today. There was sword control and weapon control in ancient Rome. And so swords were hard to come by. And so these disciples have two swords, clearly thinking they were going to be useful. And so they are. And so Peter presumably has one of these two swords that the apostles have. And so Jesus well knew they had swords because he commanded that they take the swords. So the problem here was not that Peter had the sword, nor would I say is the problem that he uses it to defend himself because that is what the sword is for. There's no other use for it. And um, that's why Jesus would have been having them carry swords. What he says, if you notice, and I'll continue in Matthew 26, he says, do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? So you'll notice, and my argument would be, that when Jesus says, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will, will die by the sword, what he is actually meaning is this specific instance. If you try to resist this, you will die. So any of you, including you, Peter, who draw the sword here to try to take on my kingdom via, via violence um, will fail. Do you not think that I could take it on by violence, he says? Like, I could do it instant. I don't need your sword. I could do it by angels. Um, but I am giving myself over because otherwise the scriptures wouldn't be fulfilled this way. And so equally he says to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? So it's, it's not a condemnation of swords and clubs because um, those would be righteous implements to put down a rebellion is what Jesus is saying. So another endorsement, I think, tacitly of using violence for righteous means, putting down rebellions, uh, unrighteous rebellions, presumably defending yourself, what have you. But what he says is, am I leading a rebellion? You know, every day I sat in the temple courts and you could have arrested me then. Clearly, I, clearly he's not 
inciting a rebellion. And in the same way, he's saying, don't try to incite a rebellion, Peter. Um, don't try to uh, live life by the sword, because in this instance, I'm not going to take over by the sword. So this, again, is a misapplied scripture by pacifists to say that you can never use force. Here is Jesus not only commanding the apostles to carry swords, but also when he says don't use the sword, it's for his particular messianic purposes. It's not for the sake of violence. And so I would actually say Luke 22 endorses the use of swords. Again, it's not a command that you must use the sword. We're not saying the Christians have to use the sword for self-defense. There are plenty of times when they don't and when you shouldn't um, by calling it the spirit, but it is not categorically disallowed for Christians to defend themselves with the sword, with the gun, to, to have concealed carry or to um, fight in wars of defense of the country. That's that's what we are saying here today, that the New Testament Jesus, and not even the Old Testament, you go to the Old Testament and show all sorts of times where God commands the Israelites to defend themselves with violent force. But here, even in the New Testament, uh, Jesus endorses violent force. And let's not forget, you might think it's super like poetic, which it is, but it equally uses the language. Matthew 10, Jesus says this, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. So again, Sword, synonymous with, with force and, and violence. So Jesus came to bring sword, and then he continues and says, I came to divide a father against his son, mother against her daughter, a mother-in-law against her brother-in-law. Um, so that's that's the source of Jesus's division is his kingdom come. So we're not advocating for some forceful Christian takeover of the world, and we're not advocating for everybody buying a gun and everybody being a Christian soldier like that. But we are saying that Jesus is not a categorical, a categorical denier of violence or war or weapons. And so those who say otherwise are denying God's law and making their own like Pharisees of old. Yes, what a critical point, actually, because yeah, if you read in John, there's actually... Uh an account from the same event in which when he says are you jesus and he says i am they all fly back or like all fall down on their faces mm -hmm. because he says the name yahweh in aramaic or greek and and then peter says like who the apostles at this time they thought the messiah is a mighty king who's going to come in and kill everybody and we're going to be the top man mm -hmm. yay for us then that's when he gets really excited and tries to swing that sword and misses which is embarrassing <laughs> only cuts off the ear of the of the of the servant of the high priest so that is when exactly it comes in so christianity is not spread by violence it is not the apostles were thinking and rather it is through the preaching the word of god this is very different compared to many other religions that do spouse for make everyone submit by means of force mm -hmm to God, maybe God in another language that's closer to Hebrew. But... Yes, we're saying Islam, of course. But uh, Islam's not yeah. unique in that, though. I mean, religions have conquered by force often. Sometimes it justifies, sometimes it's not. I would think there's a case for the Christian crusades sometimes being justified, sometimes they're not. Depends on your crusade, depends on your war. Again, I don't think there's a blanket rule. There's not a blanket rule that you can't make offensive war. There's also not a blanket rule that you can't make defensive war. There's not a blanket rule that you can't use force for violence for imposing something on somebody. And there's equally not a, a blanket rule that you can't defend um, yourself. So there are times to not offensively fight i think that's most of the time there's also times to not defend yourself i think that's not most of the time um, but in any case you can use scripture to defend um particular actions but i think you can't use scripture in this case to categorically defend some pacifist belief or some warmongering belief because either one is not um a rule in scripture and and theodore you had some interesting points here you had heard from a debate um uh, more of an argument from silence i don't know if you want to speak on that on jesus um, not condemning warriors um, yeah, I want to mention this too, because um, in that debate, oh, because in that debate, um, the pacifist eventually revealed that his pacifism basically means that no Christian is justified to be like a police officer or anybody really that administers a sort of punishment. Mm -hmm or harmful justice, I guess. Um, but then I think if you take that to it, um, its conclusion, um, if you relinquish all judgments and punishments to a pagan government, which is basically what he's arguing for because he doesn't want um, Christians to be doing that, 
then you'll be allowing for a less measured, less righteous, and less just justice than would be administered by a Christian govern governor, at least in theory. And yeah, and I think that's a practice. Yeah, it's a pragmatic view of things. I think the pacifists really hate that because they, they, like I also don't usually like arguments from pragmatism, but it is pragmatic to say that yeah, if Christians are the ones administering justice, it will be um, lighter because we'll have the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Are we well, forgetting don't like the arguments from Oops, sorry. Yeah, we are forgetting the laws of the Old Testament when the laws of the Old Testament talk about exclusively supposed Christians, or believers, you know, Israelites, um, administering death penalties and other violent forms of punishment. So um, it's commanded by God and it's good and righteous and, and lasted today. And Theodore, do you have um, some scripture quotes for like this argument from silence? So uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 10. Um and when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, and this guy is a guy who rules over um, a lot of soldiers. Mm -hmm. uh, and the centurion said to him, Lord, I am not worthy of for you to come under my roof, roof but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does that. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following him, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. So with that scripture, he's basically saying, the centurion, a man who administers harsh justice mm -hmm. um, is the one with the greatest faith in Israel. So yeah, a violent warrior, um, faithful man, but but at the least of what would be considered a police captain. At most, he'd be considered like a military captain. So somebody who participates in, in war, which the Roman state participated in a ton of war, you're arguing, and, and so did Doug Wilson in the debate you're referencing, argued that the lack of Jesus calling him out for his occupational sin is telling because he calls out others for their occupational sin, like um, Zacchaeus. When he's a tax collector, he's unrighteously collecting taxes more than he should. He gently, but he calls him out for doing it, and Zacchaeus immediately repents, and that's, there you go, that's that. And then equally for Levi, who ends up being Matthew, the writer of <laughs> said exchange with the, the centurion, the call was out of being a tax collector and into being a disciple of Jesus. So um, you'd think that he would call the centurion out of his career if it wasn't good, but instead he compliments the centurion for his faith. Now it's unrelated to him being a centurion, but um, nonetheless, it's still an endorsement of a centurion and an argument from silence, i.e. Jesus did not call him out for being a perpetrator of violence. And it shows that you can be a soldier, and it's actually mostly, unless that man was assigned on on just administrative duties for the moment, a centurion, you get the word century, 100, he commands 100 soldiers, give or take. And his main duty would have been to either train soldiers or actually be in the front of battle. Mm -hmm. And put also, also you know, court-martial people. So at the same, what it's actually saying here, what it shows is that can be a faithful Christian and hold positions of authority or military rank and still be faithful to God. So right. And with uh, regard to the common soldier, um, we find in Luke uh, chapter uh, three, um, basically crowds were coming to Jesus and it says verse 10 to 14, and the crowds were questioning him saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer that, and Jesus would answer them, uh, saying, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And Jesus said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. And again, in the debate, Doug mentions that, I believe it's in this same debate that Doug mentions 
that basically it's implied that these soldiers are going to continue to mm -hmm. have these wages like they are going to continue being soldiers right such that they need to be content with it so clearly it's not our strongest point i think our other points are stronger but if christian pacifism were true and you weren't supposed to participate in any form of violence um even righteous state violence like the centurions or these soldiers christ probably would have condemned them or said anything but he does not say it so just another point on to add that that jesus christ was not a pacifist he submitted himself to to being killed um so he didn't bring his kingdom by violence but he was not um against violence as not was not the god of the old testament because they are the same god they're all one and one god any other well, comments about violence it. yeah go ahead yes actually gentle tangent very related to this you guys mentioned it that supposedly no christian should be an authority but actually i remember again as i'm doing my yard duties here i listen to my scripture and there was something at the end of philippians as paul is just wrapping things up saying hi to everybody say this to this person at the very end philippians 4 greet every saint in christ jesus the brothers who are with me greet you all the saints greet you especially those in caesar's household the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Meaning he had gotten the opportunity to speak with people in government mm -hmm. that were related to the emperor, who were most relatives of the emperor, were either administrators or governors or generals. What this suggests to me is that the idea is actually you want Christians to be everywhere. Mm -hmm. You want the light you you want to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. So you can't you, you have to be in every profession imaginable. Not you as an individual, but the church. Right. Otherwise, how you're going to have darkness in some jobs, some job areas, and light in others. So you want to have a light everywhere. Yeah. And again, it, the, the problem here is that the debate usually comes down to, and if you hear a Christian pacifist speak, and even those who attack Christian pacifism, sometimes it just ends up being an exchange of anecdotes where you have a story like Hacksaw Ridge, where there's this hero who refuses to shoot, his gun um, which really cost the lives of his comrades but he saved you know he heroically goes and saves in a bunch of injured people and brings them down including some of the enemies and what a show of love for the enemy I mean, it's true that is what a show of love for the enemy what a courageous thing the guy did but honestly he probably got some of his fellow people killed by not shooting the the, the um movie at least portrays that where he's trying to rescue one of the guys and he won't shoot the enemy so the guy has to pick up the injured man has to pick up the gun and defend both of them so that they can get off the ridge um, these are things that endanger your fellow men they are not love for your neighbor they're not love for your enemy and so while um, anecdotes are cool and sometimes they will be heart-wrenching and sometimes they can be entirely righteous making a rule out of a good anecdote is always extremely dangerous and making binding laws on your fellow brothers is an evil thing unless you have scriptural backing and so we would say for example jesus goes and fasts 40 days and 40 nights out in the desert that was good it's righteous it's jesus's action right it's like his his coming of age story and we are not by law bound to do lent so those who say otherwise, but it's a Christian tradition these days to somehow observe Lent, but it is not a binding law on Christian polity. And certainly even those who practice Lent don't do as hardcore as Jesus typically, though there are some sects. And so to make a good example into a law is an evil thing and you should not do it. So equally with those examples where Christian pacifism is good, it's, it's, it's only incidental. It's for those particular people. Um, sometimes it's not good. Like in that case of the guy on Hacksaw Ridge, I don't think his pacifism was good, um, though he was courageous regardless. Um, but there are times where it is entirely righteous and we should applaud those people. But equally, there's times where it's entirely righteous to be violent um, for the sake of the gospel and defend against the Nazis, against home invaders, against whoever. And that's equally righteous. And to that point... Um... I wrote something a little before this and like um, with regard to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, some people mentioned, well, that implies that you love yourself. Um, and I was thinking pacifism is not always loving yourself and not necessarily always selfless, but could even at some times or in some times and circumstances be self neglect. And also the neglect of your family, your friends, and the helpless. And we are told to basically actively help the helpless. Right. 
So, and actively yeah. stop the feet of those who are shedding blood. That's a psalm and a proverb. So those men like um, John Piper, who so put aside all the cults and people who have an entirely bad view of the gospel and usually don't even hold the, the Bible as the inherent word of God, put those people aside for a second. Take men who are fellow believers like John Piper, who hold to this principle of nonviolence where because we're Christians, we shouldn't kill or maim or hurt others who aren't Christians because they will be going to hell and that would be bad. Um, it is, as Paul says, worse than an unbeliever not to provide for your family. So when you do not defend them, you are not loving your family. And your duty is first to God, then to your wife and family, then to your fellow brothers in Christ, then to your neighbor. And so when your neighbor comes to kill and violate and break God's law, he is not only attacking God's law when he does that, but he's also trying to violate your wife. So both are justified reasons to kill that unbeliever or stop him using violent force. And so if you refuse to, um, unless you have special revelation from God or whatever else, I mean, I won't make it a hard and fast rule, but that I would judge to be um, an evil neglect of duty. So that would be when pacifism is actually an evil act, not a righteous act. There is a principle here. I hope it gets well put and gets across, excuse me. From Romans 12, beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave room for the wrath of god for it is written vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord so there's a huge there's a big distinction of what we've been talking about versus what some might advocate for or either for violence or against uh, violence in christianity what as we've been going over we go over the idea of defense protection honoring your family honoring your fellow christians and your fellow man Sometimes that does require to use violence in order to protect them. Whereas what I think God is always critical of is using violence unjustly, mm -hmm. unrighteously for selfish reasons, for your own gain, for your own advancement. So that kind of violence, God despises. He looks down upon, he looks, considers that uh, egregious, terrible to use violence for your own sinful personal gains or gains, right. whatever it may be. So rather, it is don't seek to avenge yourself. Don't seek to get retribution on other people because God is the one who is sovereign and is in charge of administering justice. So no vigilante uh, justice, but rather proper godly justice is what's needed. Right. And I think just a, a small tangent, just because the, the hatred of the law is so prevalent these days, that does not mean that you don't institute God's law. So God's law has proper punishments for sin, but it also has many sins that are against God's law that don't actually have a civil punishment. In those cases, you could be tempted. You know, somebody um, doesn't treat you with care, right? There's part of God's law that says that when your neighbor comes to um, take a loan from you, don't take his millstone as um, his down payment or his uh, collateral, meaning like don't take away somebody's uh, livelihood um, if they are at debt to you. So if they're debt to you and then they can't pay back the debt, don't take away their livelihood, their way of making money back. That's evil. But there's no civil law against doing that. There's no, like, if you do that, you will have to pay them two millstones or whatever. There's no civil law about it. So when somebody does something unjust to you like that, that is legitimately against God's law, um, but there's no civil recourse for it, the vengeance is the Lord's. Like, don't think that you need to go, you know, cut his brake lines or, you know, throw rocks at his kids or whatever to get vengeance because he actually did something wrong against you, know that God will give the man his commitments, either this life or the next. Um, and then equally, you don't always have to press charges against somebody, but I would say usually you should, because that is what justice is. And, and not declaring um, and acquitting the guilty is an abomination against the Lord, is what he says. But I do think there are times like an adultery where you can um, forego charging somebody because you forgive them because the crime was against you and you, you um, acquit them. But I'll say also secondarily, so non-tangential to your point, Sebastian, uh, that, that vengeance is the Lord's and that you should not fall into wicked, self-serving violence. Uh, there's a really prominent portion of the very first chapter of Proverbs that speaks to me. And I think it speaks to um, men are often t tempted to do this. And so most Proverbs is aimed at young men. Uh, young men are tempted to use violence as a way of gaining things often. Um, whether it is sex, whether it's money, whether it's um, influence, whatever. And so this is what I think both the Christian pacifist side and the um, <laughs> the right side, our side of, of the Christian pacifist debate, both believe. And that is this. And here's from Proverbs 1. My son, if sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. 
If they say, come along with us, let's lie in wait for innocent blood, let's ambush some harmless soul, let's swallow them alive like the grave, and whole like those who go down to the pit. We will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder, cast lots with us, and we will share the loot. My son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their path, for their feet rush into evil. They are swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net where even a bird can see it. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. So in this case, it is evil that their feet rush to shed blood. So this is evil violence, but notice it is because it is a path that goes after ill-gotten gain. These are men who are eager to shed blood, so yes, they're violent, and yes, that's evil because of the influence and the um, motivation behind it, not because of it being violent, just by nature being violent. And we know from God's law also, just in case anybody's wondering, that there are different degrees of sin, and yes, murder and violence is a higher degree of sin than theft or others. So violence is a serious crime if done wrong, um, but it's also a powerful force if done right. And I think just another thing on the vengeance point, um, I, vengeance in its like godly or just definition is like justice, retribution. Mm -hmm. But then I think how a bunch of humans take it is really subjective to each individual and would generally connote like a violent desire or um, like rep retribution to an extreme degree yeah like um, you stole my lollipop i'm gonna kill your family that kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> sure or, or you stole perhaps, my gold-plated lollipop yeah or maybe you killed family so I'll, you killed my family so i'll kill yours right that's a pretty common right. like cinema trope and god says do not repay evil for evil but what that doesn't mean is don't don't have some sort of consequence like the the person who killed your family should face the death penalty in a just society so that's that verse is not saying don't repay the evil one what he's due it's saying don't repay evil with evil meaning it's evil to put the son to death for the sins of the father you know the son of this guy this enemy of yours that killed your family didn't do anything the man did and so you don't have the right to put the death penalty on all his sons you only have the right to put the death penalty on him so that's where we'd say earthly vengeance can often be way overboard and deadly and evil and that's where we should not repay evil for evil but that is beside the point of christian pacifism so don't let christian pacifists or those who support certain claims about it confuse you with anecdotes like that or or things that we all agree on because they don't actually point to christian pacifism they just point to righteous law giving and unlike humans god can exact perfect mm -hmm. precise deserved vengeance retribution whereas we might go overboard and accidentally or intentionally seek revenge on someone's entire family, even though there many of the relatives are innocent, God can justly punish the one individual who did a terrible sin against mm -hmm. you and your family. So you'll be surprised at how progressive the law of God is mm -hmm. compared to many civilizations then and today. Well, today, yeah, I mean, Everybody thinks of ancient civilizations as being barbaric, so I don't think it's that strong to say, like, look how great it was compared to crappy old Babylon. But it's better than today's law, which I think is more surprising to people and, and controversial, honestly, amongst Christians to say that God's law is better than um, the Grand Dollar USA or pick your perfect country because it is. And it is better than our law, country's law because our country's law isn't based on God's law. It's, I mean, it is based, but it's not. It isn't God's law and therefore it is flawed. Um, but yes, you're right, Sebastian. It's some in some ways not progressive because it has the death penalty in it and doesn't allow adultery and whatever else. But in other ways, it's it is perfectly protective of women and minorities and um, the rights of thieves and the image of God in, in fellow men. So it does not punish thieving with with cut off hands or murder or or enslavement forever. It is a seven year period of slavery at most, and and you're always paying off um, debts if you cause them. And there's evident grand laws for the provision of the poor and all this so it's not socialist um, but it's also not some brutal american system either that is an episode for another day any other <laughs> christian pacifist comments questions rebuttals philosophical points before we end gentlemen not for me no i just i just think it's so silly that they say that violence is a never the answer because that is such a rash as we have shown and unwise thing to say considering how often god has used proper measured 
just violence to for the glory of his name, mm-hmm. such as the destruction of the Canaanites, which wasn't just you know some random shooting spree. It was actually precise for the sins that they had committed against God, the land, and fellow men. And also the way Christ is going to execute just uh, justice by throwing the people who delight in their own wickedness and sin to the lake of fire, hell. We just saying we're going to cast them away into hell. We're not going to talk about the time period, and we'll be sitting in in such a place. But they will end up there, obviously experiencing torment to a high degree, and it's going to be just and unlike any other gods out there, let's take even Islam, in which Allah commands that you cut a person's hand off if they steal. Compare that to the law of God in the Old Testament. It is precise use of justice. You repay back what you stole. You either as a servant or you physically pay back with money. Or if you murder someone, the use of violence is appropriate at the time to take the murderer's life because they have committed such an egregious sin against their fellow man. So it's out of love for fellow man that that God commands the use of violence to take that murderer's life. So again, there's a good use of violence, and then there's the sinful way that humans use violence. Yep. So in conclusion, things we didn't talk about, so I'll just do a blitz real fast. Um, in the news, it was just Memorial Day at the time of uh, recording this episode. It's the Tuesday after the Memorial Day. So we remember those fallen people and some Christians, especially Seventh-day Adventists, I'm thinking as other Christian pacifists, take these opportunities to spit on the graves of soldiers and, um, and other things like that. Not all of them are so offensive. But uh, I'm certainly no worshiper of soldiers. I'm really not on the whole like patriot train as far as being pro every single U.S. war. I think there's a lot of unrighteousness in the U.S. government. But um, it is not inherently unrighteous to be a soldier. And there are honorable, good Christian soldiers who have died. So. Um, on that front, we honor the soldiers that have died righteously. And then equally, um, there's a huge gun debate. There always is in the United States. It seems like every year or two years, they try to strike up some sort of gun control debate. And we would say that it is not a Christian um, position to hold to gun control. It's not what Jesus held to. It's not in the law of God. It is an overreach and tyranny. Not every Christian needs to have a gun. Absolutely not. So we're not saying that every Christian mom or grandma or, or even men um, should have a gun. But I would say there are definitely wise and prudent Christians who should own guns and that it is a lawful God-given right. Um, as our founding fathers recognized, they didn't recognize every good right and sometimes they recognize rights that don't exist. Um, but we would say on this one, they agree with the Bible and that is that men have the right to defend themselves with weapons. So that's why we brought this episode up. It's thematic on several political occasions, but also because it's a theological question that's been talked about throughout the ages, as we talked about. So that being said, we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, not Barack Obama, not Donald Trump, and not any other people in between. Thanks for listening. I've been Michael Mann behind the machine, and my friend has first been... Theodore, under the PC, person of Christ. And his left has been... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. Thanks for listening. If you want to see the rest of our episodes, you can go to foundcause.podbeat.com and download them all of your listening pleasure. Or you can go to facebook.com forward slash foundcause and see our beautiful faces. We're also on YouTube. Search us up there in foundcause. And we're on iTunes and Spotify and wherever else you might find your podcast. So, until next time, we do a cool response video. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.